0: You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Well, Daniel, back with a bang. Where are we? Well, Rich, we are on the Cantabrian coast. We're about 20 kilometers east of Santander. And isn't it a beautiful spot that we have found? It's um, an incredible spot. Yeah, a place called Playa de la de las Arenas, I think it's called, and near a little town called Isla. We're sitting uh, in a
2: in a bar. Well, that that that's set up on the grass here, on a sort of uh, a, a kind of just a a spot in between two beaches. We've got beaches on either side of us. Beautiful, golden beaches small beaches um, not it's not too hot i think there's been a big dip in the temperature for you from the last few days
1: about 20 degrees isn't it mm, um, pleasant just as we passed burgos actually as we passed go in this vuelta a España, today on our long drive up last night we stayed in valladolid and we had about two and a half hours to go this morning and we sort of drove past well around about where burgos is and then the temperature dipped uh, radically well, dramatically.
2: yeah, this coast is um, notorious for erratic weather. It can be it can be cold and raining here in the height of summer. I I flew into Madrid and drove four hour and a half hours north from there, and you know, past Burgos where we started off, and you're struck by how Spain changes uh, from those vast open plains into this quite lush green countryside that we have up here because there is a lot of rain up here, and the Vuelta kicks off again tomorrow just along the coast from here, but it is an absolutely stunning spot. It feels always, hotter than 20 degrees because the sun
1: is shining on our faces at the moment. I've probably said this before in the podcast, Richard, of Vuelta, but these northern regions, which are all equally beautiful and equally beguiling, so the Basque country, um, Cantabria, Asturias, and Galicia are going in order from um, east to west, there's a slightly different shade of green um, in each of those regions I always find anyway. I always think there must be a shade n- a shade of green known as Cantabrian green. It's so vivid, What's so that luminous. What's paint manufacturer in... Uh, Dulux? Well, I not <laughs> Dulux, but yeah, you can get
2: Bass green, Cantabrian well, green. Oh, can you? Asturias was uh, what I wanted to say last night when you asked me where we were going to be because I knew we weren't in the Basque country, but... When Just in this little pocket.
1: When I think of the Basque Country, I think of a kind of a dark green. There, there are a lot of pine forests in the Basque Country. Um, these pine forests on these, you know, fantastic hills overlooking the ocean. Then in Cantabria is, as I say, it's this really kind of luminescent,
0: green, vivid green. Very vivid. Does it get paler as we it go? It gets paler as we go because, we go because, west. Like,
1: because I associate Galicia with eucalyptus trees, which are much paler, almost olivey. Uh, shade and Asturias is somewhere in between uh, Galicia that paler green and Cantabria
2: well that's where we're headed isn't it we're, we're working our way east sorry west over the course of this uh, final week at the Vuelta which kicks off again tomorrow as I said this is a rest day of course so we bring you our press conference episode we've had lots of questions despite only asking for them yesterday lots of good questions as well interesting questions so let's get straight into it shall we here's Juliana
3: Richard, Lionel, and Daniel, a huge fan of the podcast. And my question is actually about one of my favorite sections the auto diarists. Can you describe how you approach and convince cyclists to become one? And I really want to know if it involves Daniel Friberico bribing them with some fancy ham. Thank you for taking my questions. Enjoy España. Saludos, Juliana.
2: Thanks for your question, Juliana or Juliana, I oh, don't British, know the which ca- pronunciation you prefer.
1: You're the you're the captain of our ship. You're the admiral, so um, maybe you're the best place to to answer this question. The audio
2: diarist question. Um, well, I'm glad you enjoy them. That's great to hear. And uh, it's. I think the first audio diarist we uh, we asked and who kept an audio, for, or audio diary for us was Joe Dombrowski, wasn't it? At the 2016 uh, Giro, and it kind of developed from there. And it really took on a life of its own in it last year um, in the first sort of post-lockdown um, races because we weren't sure what kind of access we would have, um, it was all a bit uncertain, so for the Tour de France last year we assembled a squad of I think 10 audio diarists, um, the, the process for approaching what riders kind of, is, What
1: kind of blandishments and incentives <laughs> do and, we offer? You know, and brown envelopes are involved, Rich? <laughs>
2: Um, well, I wouldn't like to go into the, the details too much, but actually, the, the writers don't ask for anything. That's the first thing to say. The, the other thing to say is none of the writers have ever turned us down. Um, we, uh, that's not true. one, one, has one this, recently. One has this one, this, this uh, Vuelta, yeah, but for understandable reasons. Um, but other than that, every single writer has agreed when asked if they would be willing to keep an audio diary. In some cases, we've gone through the team, uh, through the team's press office, but... I would say that that's the case in about 50% of um, cases and in the others we've approached the writer directly and then they've I guess run it past their team not always (laughs) Um, but um, generally they've run it past their team and, and just done it off their own bat and I've been impressed by how committed they are James Knox I think this is his third or fourth audio diary for us and he's incredibly committed to doing it you know feels bad if he hasn't done it every day we say to them they don't have to do it every day but he it seems to be part of his ritual. Um, they get a, a lovely Stacey Snyder mug. Um, she's busy making mugs for our audio diarists here at the Vuelta as we speak, and they get that as a as a gift, um, which I think they they appreciate. It's a bit a surprise for them, although not if they're listening to this podcast. But um, yeah, it's remarkably easy, and I I don't know what the equivalent would be in other sports, but my impression from listening to other sports podcasts and knowing journalists who cover other sports is that I think we have, we're pretty lucky and we've said this on numerous occasions in terms of the, 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 the access the contact we have with the writers for all that there are press officers and media operations around teams. Now there's still, you can still very easily approach a writer directly and have a, um, a conversation with them and, explain to them you know, that you would like them to keep an audio diary and explain how that would work, etc. And as I say, in all but one of the cases um, to date, they've all said yes. They've all been willing and enthusiastic.
1: And I suppose as regards what well, the selection, the main criterion, and a criterion we talk about a lot when it comes to interviews as well, and the riders might be completely oblivious to, or they, they certainly don't think about it too much, I don't think, is who's a good talker and who's not who who is expansive, who enjoys communicating their, you know, their daily experience. And and you know, there are other riders who partly because they don't think it's interesting to other people, they they're not naturally inclined to share the minutiae of their day, but we try to, based on previous interactions with these riders, Go for the guys who have who we've thought have been engaging in, in interviews. And I have to say, final point on this, I've said this before, but I think
2: we get more out of them through the audio diaries because they own them. They take they, they take some pride in, in what they, they put out. They're very aware that they're speaking through their audio, audio diary directly to you, the listeners. And there's a different dynamic to that to an, an interview outside the team bus where they can be a bit guarded and defensive. Um, you know, when we ask them to keep an audio diary it's their responsibility to make that interesting and norm and in 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 all the cases so far they they have tried to do so i have to special shout out for victor campenarts at the tour de france this year didn't finish but terrifically entertaining audio diarist and connor swift who's kept an audio diary for us the last two tours of france and it's been absolutely brilliant also i should say riding extremely well at the moment
0: You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data actionable insights and personalized analytics we're here to help you achieve your performance goals go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success
2: thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor super sapiens we're very grateful to them for their support and in conjunction with them we are offering three months worth of Super Sapiens devices so you can monitor your blood glucose levels. We ran this competition at the Giro d'Italia as well. And Fiona Bell was one of three winners. We heard from her last night. Let's hear now what her reaction was when she heard she was one of our winners.
4: Hello, so my name is Fiona Bell. I'm from Woking in Surrey in England. And I was really, really lucky and absolutely thrilled to win the Super Sapiens competition um, so that I was able to try out and use the uh, Super Sapiens device and um, app for a three-month period. I have to say that I was really, really thrilled when when I won. I mean, there's some of the people that were, um, you know, giving their testimonies of what you know, they just sounded amazing people. So I was really, really quite shocked that I did win. But on the other hand, I have to say it was been it was it it, it has been really. I mean, transformative might be a little bit over the top, but it has been really, really useful, and I've learned so much. So, you know, win, winning these competitions, I, I don't, well, it just doesn't happen that often, does it? But when you win something that's really useful and has really helped you in your life, yeah, that's amazing.
2: Well, it's Fiona Bell, and uh, she's been enjoying using her Super Sapiens. If you'd like to enter the competition, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you'll see there how to submit your 60 seconds or less of audio telling us how and why you would use Super Sapiens. And thanks once again to them. Let's go to our next question. Andy Gladstone.
0: My question is regarding Jay Vine and the fact that although we see people taking bottles from the cars all the time, we're getting medical attention. I can't recall ever seeing a rider falling during that aspect of the race. And I was wondering if it may have something to do with the fact that he was promoted to the world tour true Zwift, where he didn't necessarily have to have the same bike handling skills as someone who grew up uh, in the pro ranks, going from semi-pro continental to pro, um, and perhaps it's just a, a skill set that he lacks.
1: Well, Rich, having been a, a very high-level rider yourself, you would probably, you're probably better placed to answer this question than me, but my understanding, my interpretation is that Jay Vine's crash the other day when trying to take a bottle well can be partly explained by his inexperience that's i mean i've i've heard various people talking about this and and they would certainly agree with that assessment that he he's extremely inexperienced uh, when it comes to world talk racing top level racing and and probably does lack some of these basic skills we've heard of over the years you know whether it's putting a jacket on uh, taking a bottle, and I, I don't think... I'm not sure Jay Vine has crashed before while taking a bottle, but I, I I believe there is there has been previous evidence of him struggling with this kind of thing.
2: And and I think lots of riders, it's something we've been talking about a lot, actually. I listened to a podcast today with uh, Jay Vine, uh, talking in, in quite a lot of depth about his career, and what's striking is how little he has raced. And, you know, he's one of these riders who um, has suffered as a result of COVID. You know, that's had a terrible effect on racing at the lower levels. And, you know, he's only just stepped up from the lower levels. I mean, his last race before the Tour of Turkey this year, which he was his debut for Alpha and Fenix and where he finished second overall, which was quite astonishing. But his last race before that was 18 months earlier, the um, Herald Sun Tour, uh, where he was fifth. And that's a long period of time to go without racing. But he hadn't done much racing even before then, so he is very inexperienced. I mean, it's tempting to to watch that and say, "Well, that's that's a guy who's struggling to get to grips with some of the the the, the things that you have to be able to do as a professional rider: get drinks from bottles, ride in close proximity to a car, take a sticky bottle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and to think that that reflects kind of. Badly on Zwift, perhaps because Zwift famously is a um, is a is a tool for well, it's a it's a way of of training and and, and racing as well, but it's also um, uh, a tool for measuring riders' uh, physical capabilities. And with Jay Vine, it obviously revealed a, a rider of exceptional talent, and perhaps that's the thing we should be concentrating on because he has come through the Zwift Academy, he's made his debut this year at this level with Alps and Fenix, and he's acquitted himself incredibly well. I mean, second at the Tour of Turkey, and now at the Vuelta, riding really, really well. I mean, he rode extremely well on that stage after the crash. Um, that's maybe the thing we should focus on more, the fact that he's come through the Zwift Academy, and it's worked, in the sense that, clearly, physically, he's capable. And even you know, this interview that I listened to was well before the Vuelta, and well before the crash, but he talked about um, he thought that, although he lacked those skills, he recognised that he lacked those skills, that he could learn them. And I think he has to be given time to learn them. Some riders never do, though.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it's not a foregone conclusion, is it? Um, everything I've heard indicates that Jay Vine is uh, a huge talent and he has massive potential. And um, Alperson Phoenix are obviously investing in that potential because they've given him another, I think it's another two-year two contract. Yeah. But... I would also say that you know he's performing really well at the Vuelta, and I think the Vuelta is, is the easiest Grand Tour to um, to negotiate your way around if you are inexperienced. The roads are really good most of the time; they're pretty wide. There's there's minimal traffic furniture compared to the Tour and the Giro. So um, I think he'll know that he's he's got a lot of work to do before he's necessarily you know challenging in the Tour de France and the Giro,
2: That's an interesting point. It's one that James Knox made in his audio diary, actually, which was released today as Kilometre Zero. Um, they, he was talking about the, the, the failure to, um, to have, you know, echelons and that, something that I hadn't really acknowledged fully, that the width of the Spanish roads is a factor. Yeah. You know, It's far easier to form echelons on narrow roads.
1: Yeah, I mean, there have been days at this Vuelta. It's really hit home this year, because partly because the regions we've been in, um, so regions like Extremadura, where we've spent a lot of time in the last three or four days. I mean, often the peloton's been on the same road, essentially, for 50 kilometers. And then you talk about, well, prior to that, we'd had stages where people thought there might be echelons and they talked they talked about one turn in the road you know there's a there is a turn after 33 kilometers or after 150 kilometers and everyone everyone knows where it is and everyone knows to be at the front then but whereas in the tour when there is the threat of echelons the threat of winds it's often four five six different places you know roundabouts turns that right turn then a left turn then a then a right turn again and that's just not the case at the Vuelta and um There is a big difference, actually, in terms of, like I say, road furniture and also the quality of the roads here at the Welter is excellent. Um, People don't really talk about it. It's the kind of thing they only mention when when it's lacking, which is often the case at the Giro, for example. But I think it's the perfect grand tour um, for someone who is inexperienced.
2: Just a point I wanted to mention, actually, we were talking about audio diaries in the last part. And I should have mentioned Lizzie Banks as well. She was one of our first audio diarist at the Giro Rosa, ended up keeping an audio diary for us at two Giro Rosas, one stage is both years, and obviously ended up as a presenter on the cycling podcast of Service Course. So a real talent that we discovered through asking her to keep an audio diary.
3: Hello, Richard, Daniel and Lionel. This is a question from Tristan in Paris um, about Roman Bardet. I noticed on an episode of the podcast a few days ago that he was speaking almost flawless English, um, which is rare sometimes for uh, French sports people. I wondered, is this a new thing for Romain Bardet? Could it be related to him moving to a uh, less French, more international team? Um, and finally... Are there any other uh, s- cyclists who speak unexpected languages that you have come across? Thank you very much.
2: Well, thanks for your question, Tristan, about Roman Bardet and his um, ability with English. He's always been a good English uh, speaker. He has English always speaker. spoken decent English,
1: yeah. Uh, it's obviously improved this year at DSM. But he, um, yeah,
2: I mean, I, I, as far as I can remember, he's spoken decent English. What about other French riders who speak good English? Well,
1: it's a real generational change, Rich. Um Slightly to the dismay of of someone who's used to used to interviewing riders in you know interviewing French riders in French, um, they all well a lot of them speak English now. Well, it's
2: very strange at the tour to hear uh, for Francois Tomazo to be interviewing French riders in English. He did one with Julian Alaphilippe. Alaphilippe obviously speaks excellent English because he's on a and very good French and very good French. He's on a team where English is is the the main language probably. Yeah. The current Quick Step, and that that's. That's usually a factor, and it just so happens that a lot of the French riders are still in French teams, and French is definitely the language there. And, and you know, riders who join those teams, like Larry Warbass, have to learn French. Although, yeah. I went into Aurelien paris Pontre at the Tour de France, and he speaks very good English. He does,
1: yeah. It, like I say, it's a generational thing. That I, I would say the guys of sort of 27, 28 or under now all tend to speak pretty... Good English, some of the older riders, and as you say, the ones who have spent their whole career in French teams, particularly. Uh, Groupama, FDJ, you know, Arnaud Demar doesn't really do English interviews. I don't think Thibaut Pino has never done English interviews. I think Demar does speak, actually, decent English. Yeah, I think
2: they all speak something. They all speak. Uh, uh, Thibaut Pino's brother, his coach, who who you know well, Julien, he speaks good English, doesn't he? He
1: he does, he does. But yeah, the culture is changing. It's changing among the Italians as well. Most of them are speaking decent English now. Um, Tristan also asked about riders who unexpectedly or speak other languages or um, speak unexpected languages. Um, a few came to mind: Cesare Benedetti yeah. speaks Polish, which is a very difficult language to learn. But I mean, unexpectedly, his wife is Polish, and he has now become Polish um, as a result of that. Um, but still. That that's a bit of a feather in his cap isn't it um, I heard Guillaume Martin in the in the mixer the other day speaking pretty decent Spanish which I, I didn't I, I couldn't quite work out where that had come from the um, there was no obvious reason why he would speak good Spanish Chris Froome always impressed me that he would have a go in you know he, he answered questions in press conferences in Spanish in Italian he did a bit of French as well um, a few others here. George Bennett in, speaks pretty good Dutch. Um, I've heard him do interviews in Dutch. He's obviously ridden for. And, and Matt a Dutch Heyman team for and all Robbie McEwen also. Yeah, they, lived, Dutch. In, they yeah, lived for they quite lived a while. There, yeah. well, they, in fact, Matt Heyman still lives in in the Netherlands, I think. Stenek Stieba speaks excellent Dutch, uh, Flemish. He has obviously raced there for years, done cyclocross races. Mikael Honoré speaks very good Italian. He. Has an Italian girlfriend, however. So again, you know, probably understandable that he would speak good Italian. The, the, the British riders are, are a different, are a different story, aren't they? Um, you, I, I don't think it's any secret that British people generally are not noted. Why well, looking at me? Well, Daniel. they're not noted for their language learning, and in. But there have been uh, there have been exceptions, anomalies. Hugh Carthy speaks very good Spanish. Um, he's okay. He's lived in Spain for many years. But we've seen other British riders who have lived in countries for many years and not picked up anything or next to nothing. Um, David Miller spoke good French. Bradley Wiggins speaks Bradley Wiggins. good French. Yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, there, there there are there are a few who really relish the challenge of learning and speaking other and there, languages. There
2: are other. I was. Speaking to Joe Laverick a few weeks ago, he lives in Girona, big set in Girona, and I think a lot of the people who live in Girona, the riders who live in Girona, um, don't speak the local language, of Catalan. And he said that if they, you know, sometimes when they're out and about in Girona, if they speak Spanish, they will be replied to in English, because English would be the favoured language over Spanish, um, with Catalan the, the number one language. So, I mean, that sounds like a bit of an excuse to me, but...
1: <laughs> Tristan asked about Roman Baldé, we had another question about Bardet didn't really reach about his stage win the other day how it was concocted constructed uh, directed directed. what role did Matt Winston the DSM director sportif slash coach play well happily fortunately I spoke to Matt Winston about precisely that and about Bardet and his first season with DSM the morning after well, Matt, yesterday Roman gave you a lot of credit for when you made the decision to, to launch him on that final climb. But again, was this one of these that you'd studied, planned, uh, you know, given Roman a couple of easy days before that it was very much a sort of there was a pin in, in that day for him? Yeah, we knew that was a day that would really suit him. Um, we.
5: One thing that's not been clear in this world to so far is how long it will take the breakaway to go. So you do have to be sharp from the start. And... I always kind of bring the kickers, the closed towns, okay, now is, is an opportunity. And we saw that kicker yesterday, there was a group away and um, we came down the main road, you could see it in the distance. So kind of gave all the radio, okay guys, we've got 2K kicker here, this is where we have to be sharp. Um, and then the breakway actually formed over there. Originally, we wanted a few more guys in the break because just helps the support. But then we, we kind of, I saw the composition of the break and I thought, okay, we can, we can work with this in a, in a good way. So, um, and then the break went out it was kind of ended up a little bit negative in that breakaway at the end but of course also if I was a sport director in another car I would be saying follow Roman he's the strongest climber Um, and I was saying that to him during the stage guys will follow you you just have to stay patient and we have to use this is where we have to really use the course to uh, take our advantage so we tried it a few times There's also headwind on the last climb which doesn't make it easy uh, when you're trying to launch an attack and once we went into the more more tree covered area uh, there was kind of a left turn and when it went up uh, 7% then up to like 10% and I said okay this is where we have to now we give it a go we go all in um, and we see what happens and he rode straight across the breakaway straight past and, and continued. so yeah it was uh, it was a nice way to take the stage
1: and it was the kind of one where you imagine a, well maybe a less experienced rider and a, a less able sports director might have launched him a bit sooner because Prodom looked as though he was getting a decent gap and you're into sort of the danger zone there yeah,
5: I, I think kind of we, we looked at it and I kept saying to him in the radio, as long as it's less than a minute, we can still do anything up until four or 5K to go. When you have a guy like Roman, you can close that gap um, with uh, in the last 5K. When you think of how hard this felt has been so far and how hot it's been and how hard the, the parkours have been, then everyone's kind of racing already a little bit fatigued. So it was kind of a little bit of a risk, but it was also one where I said, we have to keep believing Otherwise, you, you stop investing and you stop really thinking about that victory. So I just kept trying to motivate him to keep believing it's still possible. We can still do it. And then yeah, when he launched it, then he, looked, he also looked super, super good. And he actually went across the break quicker than I expected, to be honest. Matt,
1: um, it's ended up being a pretty good first season for him, I think you'd agree, um, with the Jira and here. There was this, this sort of idea in French cycling that he'd, he was someone who'd squeeze absolutely everything out in terms of he was always someone who was well into you know, his kind of marginal gains and, and he'd maybe sort of plattered in that respect. But what, what have you made of him this year? What's impressed you about him and, and how much and where can he still improve? I think the the main thing we roam on.
5: We, we came into the team, and like with all riders, we we take the results focus off it. And it would have been easy to come to this welter and say, yeah, we need to go and win four or five stages so that people kind of start saying uh, positive things about the team. But we we just focus on the process, and I really believe that when we do that, the, the results will follow. So we didn't. We've not any one day sat in the bus and said, okay, now we have to win today. Now we have to. Um, get a podium today. It's all about, okay, this is the plan, this is our process, and this is how we wanna do it. And from the day Roman came into the team, he's really bought into that philosophy. So we've taken all that pressure of kind of, this is a race you have to win, this is a race you have to prove yourself. There's, there's nothing about that. It's about working with the experts, developing yourself in that way. Um, also takes a little bit to transition, getting to know new new experts, new uh, coaches, new riders. And then uh, so then we'll really start to, to make the steps. And I think now we're starting to see the fruition of that.
0: Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta a España. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
2: Thank you very much indeed to Science in Sport, our long-term sponsors. I mentioned earlier on that Joe Dombrowski was our first audio diarist at the 2016 Giro d'Italia, and that was the first grand tour at which Science in Sport supported the cycling podcast. They've been with us ever since, so thanks very much indeed to them. If you would like 25% off your Science of Sport products, go to sciencesport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. S-I-S-C-P-25.
6: Hi, lads. It's uh, Ben from Richmond in Yorkshire here. Really enjoying the Vuelta coverage and uh, like you, I guess, hoping the GC battle kicks off a bit more in the last week. Um, just a quick question, though, about bike exchange. Um, I'm not sure what you think, but for me, they've gone from a pretty high-profile team in the peloton uh, this year to one of the most anonymous, really. just seems to me like they've lost their mojo, their identity a bit this year. Um, you've got these really good young Australian riders riding for other teams, riding for French teams, riding for Bahrain victories in the case of Jack Haig. And I just really wonder what you thought the future of the team was. Is it all around Simon Yates, or are they going to become more of a one-day team? Or what's really your thoughts on where they're going as a team?
2: That's a very interesting question from Ben from Richmond about team bike exchange. And you you look at Jack Haig here riding extremely well. He obviously moved from that team over the winter and he was, you know, he was, he was one of their, you know, cards to play behind the Yates brothers and Chavez. That was their trident for a few years, wasn't it? And Jack Haig was one of these strong support riders. Um, and at the point in his career where he was clearly ready to take the next step, rather than stay at the team he was at, at a time when they lost Adam Yates, he moved on. Now, I think there were a few reasons for that. One big reason was the the pay cut that was uh, that affected all the, the team bike exchange riders last year when they were still and Scott. But we did an interview with Jack Haig during the kind of COVID lockdown. And he he made pretty clear, we 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 know how honest a, a speaker Jack Haig was, and he was very honest about how the pay cut had affected him, his mood, his morale, his feelings towards his team. He felt the team had entered into a contract and agreement with him that they'd broken um, during the coronavirus crisis. Obviously, reasons for that. Um, the team is funded largely by Jerry Ryan, who owns most of the companies that have sponsored the team over the years. Um, so there were there were reasons for it, but it left a sour taste in his mouth and may have been a factor in him leaving. And they've missed out, haven't they? Because he's performing extremely well and they lost Adam Yates and it's true that they have not punched much of a hole this year. I bumped into Brent Copeland at the Tour de France on the final day in Paris and he is their sort of general manager now um, having previously been at Bahrain and he said that, you know, they were very unhappy with their tour and they would be debriefing
1: and trying to analyse what had gone wrong but the Vuelta hasn't gone that much better. No, it's a really good question and I think a fair question. I think they were unlucky in the sense that, well, it's well documented that the team's future has been uncertain for a while financially. Jay Ryan's been looking for another sponsor. Or the team's been looking for another sponsor for, for quite a while. And then last year, if you remember, when, it, when the, the, the Man, Manuela Fundación sort of false dawn happened, I think that was round about the time when a lot of riders were considering what to do next and Jack Haig I think was in that position I think Adam Yates was in that position it just so happened that in Yates's case um, Ineos were were ready and available and you know they were offering him a probably quite a lucrative contract at that time so it was probably a relatively easy choice for him to make perhaps similar with Jack Haig and you know they've in terms of Australian riders because that team's that team's nationality and identity is Australian still, although it, you know they've had success with international riders, but it's probably a bit of a pill that you know Ben O'Connor, Jai Hindley, Michael Storer, and Jack Haig are all on different teams now. Meanwhile, I think they have invested in some well, Antipodean riders, if not Australian. Um, They've they've had very high hopes for Lucas Hamilton, who started the season really well, finished fourth in Paris, tenth in Catalonia, eighth in Romandy, but it's had a pretty very, bit of a wretched summer. Crashed out of the Tour de France in Carcassonne, has struggled at, here at the Vuelta. He hasn't cracked the top thirty in any stage yet, and. You know, Matt White, the head sports director there, has been talking for years about Robert Stannard and what a huge talent he is. It's a talent that's not really fully bloomed yet. We you know, there've been hints he wrote a good welter last year, but we haven't really seen him make a big breakthrough. And I think Dion Smith hasn't really kicked on this year in the way that the team probably would have hoped and anticipated because he he also was very impressive at times last year. So they haven't been blessed with, with good fortune. And, and often it does come down to fortune when these riders, um, you know, find their mojo and, 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 and find their self-confidence as well to start getting results. But there are probably some, you know, you mentioned Brent Copeland there, Rich. I imagine part of that debrief after the tour would have been about recruitment and what direction do they want to go in? Um, you know, they're not the richest team in the world, but, there will be budget there. You know, Chavez is leaving this year. Okay, he's not on a big salary. Um, but I, I guess they will have to make a decision on, on where they allocate you know, the resources they, they do have. Whether they double down on, you know, Michael Matthews. Michael Matthews has not won a lot of races. He's had a respectable season. He's always consistent, but he's not won a lot. Or do they, do they go the other way and focus their efforts on supporting Simon Yates again? I think Matt
2: White's coming out, isn't he? Or if he might be here already um, at the us. So these are questions that
3: we should really put to him, and we will. Hello, Toby Hopkins here, friend of the podcast from London. A new press conference? That's poggers. That's pog. That's Champ. Does Daniel know those words? Or what they mean? Or who uses them? Uh, they're gamers' words, streamers' words. And it means cool, great, fantastic, Awesome. Anyway, my question for today, for Richard and Daniel, and for Lionel, if he um, dials into this, is a language question. So there you all were, uh, working away as print journalists, and you've moved. I know you still dabble in print, but... You've become voice journalists and I wonder what this has meant for your approach to language. Has it changed how you use language? Changed how you think about language? Are there any things that you do now, rib-tickling humour, perhaps that are different from what you do in print? Uh, Interested in your thoughts around that.
2: Thanks very much for your question, Toby. It's an interesting one as well. Daniel, have you um, noticed any... uh, changes in in the way that you use language and you're doing tv as well of course i don't know if that's different again but in 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 audio as opposed to in writing is is your use of like does your use of language change at all no,
1: it's, well i think it's just become another source of self-consciousness self-evisceration self-loathing <laughs> um in my case you know just a, a different source of that Okay, I'll try and give it a serious... Uh... <laughs> that was very serious. Okay. Um,
2: I, I mean, I, I think that uh, what, what's the revelation for me has been has, has been in... So we don't script things very often, but sometimes we do. And you can improve any writing by saying it out loud. It's something I learned years ago when I was working on a book with an editor who demanded that I read the entire book to him out loud and through that process you make the writing an awful lot better because i i think in my early days of writing i thought that good writing was quite complex dense writing long sentences lots of clauses semicolons uh, commas etc sprawling kind of sentences i thought was was good writing um but actually simple writing is, is better writing, uh, clear writing is better writing, and I learned that over time through working with editors, but I've learned it again even more through doing the podcast and through occasionally scripting things and reading them, because through that process, through reading your own writing, you, you hear what works and what doesn't, you hear repetition of words, you hear senses don't flow properly, and that process is that I think that makes you a better writer. That that process of reading your your writing out loud makes you a better writer for sure.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree, Rich. Although with writing, it can also be difficult to to embrace your own identity and, and embrace the fact that you know you say that complex writing often isn't better, generally isn't better. But there are some people, some writers who only sound natural in that voice and have that particular way of expressing themselves. I mean, I think of... I um, mean, it's a different language, but in L'Equipe, the, the kind of most prestigious, most well-known, renowned cycling writer for years was Philippe Brunel, and his sentences were sometimes... were sometimes a whole paragraph. They were sometimes 15 lines long. But it's a hard, it's a hard thing to pull off. It is a hard thing to Philippe pull Brunel. off. It is, a, it is a hard thing to pull off, but in his case you know he could have spent his whole sort of career trying to shoehorn his personal style his personal voice into that template that you you're talking about which you know i agree that's kind of what i strive for struggle with but um, it is it can be quite hard to strike the balance between knowing and embracing and and feeling comfortable in your own voice as a writer and and well, reconciling that with what you you believe to be more simple, more effective prose, which you see other people you know pull off, and you can't seem to be able to do it. No,
2: it is an int- interesting one. I think um, when you read that very complex, dense writing and it's done well, then that's what you aspire to do yourself. But it is a hard, it's a much harder thing to do. I was reading in the plane today. Um, Death in the Afternoon, Ernest Hemingway's book about bullfighting in Spain. And he's the master of the really kind of stripped down, very clear... It's characteristic of American writing anyway, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. Um, a, a little can say a lot, you know? Um, and that that is... You read that and you you think it looks so simple and straightforward. It's very, Again, that's very hard to do as well. I mean, good writing is hard to, to achieve. But I think that the process of certainly writing and reading it out loud... Whether you're just doing that for fun or because you're having to read a script in a podcast, that, that can only make your writing better, whether you're writing complex sentences or short ones.
6: Hey guys, Lucas from Cologne, Germany here. I'm curious if we're about to see a breakout performance in the last week of The Welter from a writer who hasn't shown his
1: full potential on the biggest stage before. As for example, Nairo Quintana in 2012 or Jonas Vingegaard last year.
2: Thanks for your question, Lucas.
1: Breakout performance, what uh, might we see this week, Daniel? Well, it's a, it's a good question and I guess the more you do these races, the more you do Grand Tours and you speak to riders, the more you realise that your preconceptions about how riders can come into form at the end of Grand Tours and how they can ride themselves into better form are usually misplaced. And actually, everyone is pretty zombified by the last week. And it's a case of who gets, who deteriorates the least. And speaking about this world, particularly, thinking about the rosters, the, the riders that have been sent here... There are a lot of inexperienced guys, a lot of guys doing their first um, Grand Tour and it's probably unrealistic to expect many of them to really, you know, suddenly find their mojo in the last week. That said, it's a kind of different different style of stage in, in some cases, particularly in Asturias when we've got Covadonga and uh, Gamonitero. So we might see a different kind of rider come to the fore. Later in the week, Rich, we've got a kilometre zero that is going to be talking about Bora Hans Growers, two rookies at this Vuelta a España both of whom have come from different sports um, not only riding their first Grand Tour but they're riding their first season as full-time road cyclists Anton Pautzer and Ben Zvihoff both good climbers they've both been, if you were being harsh you'd say quite anonymous so far in the Vuelta but they've got through okay they've done pretty well and I think one of those two might, might surprise a few people in one of the mountain stages. If they can, you know, if they can get to the bottom of, of a final climb in a good group, then who knows? They're, they're both physically quite talented.
2: Well, we've mentioned them already, but I think Jay Vine might be capable of a good performance um, this week. And uh, time and Aronsman. The young rider at DSM. Been quiet so far. He needs been been some breaks. He rode he rode well at the at the Vuelta last year, didn't he? In his first Grand Tour, um, he has been in a couple of breaks recently. I, I've I've just spotted him, um, and I, I wonder if we might see him this week. He's a huge talent. He was second to uh, Pagachar at the Tour de l'Avenir a couple of years He's ago. He's
1: another man, isn't he? Aaron's man. Aaron's man. <laughs> yeah. Like Superman. He is. Nairo man. Wilker but. man. <laughs> Let's hear another question.
7: Hey, guys, this is Patrick from Chicago. Uh, great Vuelta coverage as always. Uh, so my question is about the destabilization of the sport by this younger generation in general. I know the going theory is that these guys have been training at a higher level with power meters since a very young age. So they're they're more professional as they come in. And then you guys have mentioned, and I buy into David Epstein's uh, range argument, that you know a diverse set of skills makes you more excellent across the board when it's a very dynamic environment, just like a bike race is. Uh, and, you know, that was, in my eyes, symbolically confirmed when Van Art beat CAV on the Champs-Elysees. Uh, but here's my here's a third idea. And this is my main question of this. Could we be seeing more de-specialization in the sport because this younger generation has grown up with more access to an entire cycling calendar since Internet live streaming has been dramatically increased over the past decade? So, you know, they just naturally have more diverse objectives set because they've seen all these cool races like Strata and they they want to win that just as much as they want to win a Monument or a Grand Tour even. You know, I mean, like if, if Garrett Thomas could only win one more Grand Tour, it seems like he would take a second Tour instead of a Giro or a Vuelta because uh, he's been targeting the Tour since he won it the last time. Whereas Brunel, you could arguably say that's not the case anymore or even beforehand, you know. Uh, he still would have taken a Giro even if he had a clear shot at the Tour again without like with full team leadership support. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks again for all the coverage. Uh, it's been great. Thanks for your question, Patrick.
2: I, I think it's a really interesting question. He mentioned Strade Bianchi, and, and that is the sort of race that, you know, you can imagine 20, 30 years ago, nobody would really... Know an awful lot about, and and even some of the sort of gravel races and, and things like that. There are races that can develop their mythology in a in a far easier way than in the old days with with TV coverage and and so on uh, and live streaming. Um, so riders who are and and just the coverage now, you know, the Britannia Classic at the weekend. Um, there's so much cycling on telly that riders who are watching that and, and really interested in that could see races that appeal to them and, and 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 inevitably by watching them on TV, just as the Tour de France has done over 100 years, by being on TV by being the race that it is
1: it, 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 the, the mythology of it is created around it I also think if we talk about the which we have done on numerous occasions in the last few months and years the socioeconomics of cycling and the kind of people that now find their way into cycling generally from relatively well-to-do families and I don't think they necessarily feel the same economic pressure that maybe riders in previous generations did and often that that pressure would dictate career choices you know they would strive for whatever was going to bring the most prestige and the most money whereas now I think As in society, um, on a general level, people are more inclined, or people from a certain sort of social class are more inclined to follow their heart, follow their dreams, follow their aspirations. And I think that's probably the case in cycling as well. There's
2: probably, as in wider society, um, the traditional mainstream media might be less influential in deciding which races are the most important. So the Tour de France, it's, its reputation and its appeal has been built on it being the, the, the event covered the most by French television, by the newspapers, etc. Could there be a sort of democratisation of events where, and, and could that over time lead to the, the Tour de France or other races kind of getting up to that level? I don't know it, whether, whether that, that sort of endorsement is going to count for a bit less as we go on.
1: Well, Rich, that might lead in to another question we had from Craig from um, Barcelona about sort of prolonging... I I don't think Craig's from Barcelona originally. (laughs) Prolonging the excitement generated by Grand Tours by perhaps adding a fourth Grand Tour, for example. Well, let's listen to what Craig said. I've really enjoyed your coverage of the Grand Tours again this year and I'm already a bit sad that it's so long until the next one. Is
2: there an opportunity for a Southern Hemisphere Grand Tour at either end of the season? I'm imagining a tour across the of the Americas across Colombia, Ecuador and the southern United
1: States. This would really help bridge the gap between the Vuelta and the Giro
6: each year. And you guys could get to eat guinea pig.
1: This is an interesting one, Rich. I must confess I was listening to a rival podcast the other day. Um, in a different language, not a rival language, a different language <laughs> and um, they were talking about how to maintain interest or generate interest in the welter as opposed to the Tour, um, as opposed to the Giro and this idea that's often been floated of reducing the length of the other Grand Tours, making them maybe two weeks and the Tour de France three weeks. It um, struck me, how about how about rotating the dates of the three Grand Tours? so one year the welters in july the tours in september um or the tours in june Jira's in september something like i don't know i don't know if that would make much difference but i also thought that you know the welter although i think we all agree that it's better later later in the year than previously when it was in april we're going back to the mid 90s now and um, this year in particular with the olympics having you know forced a reshuffle in the calendar it's 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 a it's very early isn't it um it was very early in august and it's been a very compressed grand tour season and i think last year in the covid season taught us that you know you could have you can have a a major tour in the autumn and um probably suited the the vuelta best of the three grand tours but that's certainly a possibility
6: Hi chaps, Simon Bittlestone from Eastleigh in Hampshire here. Relatively new listener to the podcast, have been getting very into watching the road racing this year and found the podcast an excellent companion for understanding everything that's going on. Earlier on in the race, uh, you were asking the question, why on earth is Tom Peacock riding La Vuelta? and you speculated perhaps it's to do with him training towards the World Championships. And this got me thinking about how the relationship works between a rider's team and their national side. Presumably in Pigcock's case, there's a good amount of coordination behind the scenes between INEOS and British Cycling to make training programs work for both. But I wondered about other riders, for example, Wout van Aert as a, a Belgian rider riding for a Dutch team, whether there's similar sort of coordination the run up to a world championships particularly a home one in his case and whether you ever get anything in cycling like sometimes you do in football a kind of a club versus country row or rivalry you get players sometimes feigning injury to avoid going on international duty so whether there's ever any of that sort of tension that goes on behind the scenes in cycling as well or is it a much more harmonious picture and perhaps while you're there, be interested to know who do you think is going to win the Worlds this year?
2: Thanks very much for your
6: question, Simon.
2: It's great to hear that you're a new listener. That's always nice to nice to hear um, that you find the podcast and that it's enhancing your enjoyment of the Grand Tours in particular. Um, club versus country. It's a really good question. Um, and there was a case well, last year, wasn't there, of Dries devenen's the de Kooning quickstep rider, who turned down a place in the Belgian team because he didn't want to have to ride against... That was rare, wasn't it? That's rare, but he didn't want to have to ride against his his professional teammate, Julian Alaphilippe. He would have been called upon there to help Wout van Aert, and had he been in that chasing group behind Alaphilippe, maybe he would have made the difference, but he didn't want to be in that position of having to work with a a Belgian rider against Julian Alaphilippe, and he's been instrumental in a lot of Alaphilippe's victories. That is quite rare. It doesn't come up very often, and it is I guess surprising that the teams seem so indulgent of their riders' dreams, ambitions to ride for their country in the world championships. Apart from the fact, I guess, if a, if a rider comes back with the world title, um, that's uh, that, that's a good thing for the for the pro team as well and for that rider's profile.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. We have seen examples before of. Riders going away to the national team, and then effectively, when they're in the national team, helping uh, a rider from a rival trade team to win the the rainbow jersey, which would therefore, you know, disadvantage their own team. And you know, we, we do get politics. There was there was a lot of it. There was always a lot of it in the Italian camp, and particularly there was a, a phase around about um, what well, the noughties, 2000s. When the, there were all sorts of allegations about there being a Tuscan clique in the national team, and there was that famous Worlds in 2001 in Lisbon, where Paolo Lanfranchi, who was a Lampre sorry, who was a Mape rider, supposedly chased down Gilberto Simoni to help Oscar Freire, the Spanish rider, who was also his Mape trade teammate. We've seen many examples like that over the years, but generally, I think. the the club versus country sort of conflict or interest doesn't doesn't really exist because what's good for the for the country is is very often good for the club as the team as well i as you say rich if they come back with the the rainbow jersey and also in cycling um okay there are there is the risk of crashes um but it doesn't often happen in a one-day race you know one guy might might crash and injure himself in a 260-kilometre race, which is different from football where players go away for a week, two weeks, they play twice and often come back with injuries. It would be different if it was a stage race, wouldn't it? I don't think they'd, they'd be willing to send their riders away for a stage race. No, I mean, it is an interesting
2: question to maybe ask a few sports directors this week, though, because, you know, your Alaphilippes, your Van Arts, you can see their professional team supporting them because... The, 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 the glory that would come with the world title reflects back on the team where it does differ a little bit is when a team has a strong rider who's going to be going off to world championship to ride in support of a rider on another team, that is an odd position to be in um, and you mentioned Simon in your question any awesome relationship with British Cycling, I, I don't think that relationship is is all that close anymore and and I think Ineos is a more international team now although they did obviously support Ethan Hayter to go to the Olympic Games but then Bora Hansgrohe supported Matt Walls to go to the Olympic Games as well Rich can
1: you answer a question I should I feel I should know the answer to since when have national team kits featured well been made up of a national team jersey and, and shorts with the the sponsor of the That's trade. That's a good point team. because
2: that used to be always the case that the riders used to Well, it to
1: still is the case, isn't it? Is, or it? is it not?
2: I don't think it is. Oh, okay. But in, oh, I mean we're, we're we're being found out here, but in the old days the riders used to just wear the national team jersey and their professional trade team shorts. Now they don't do that anymore. I don't think they have their professional sponsor anywhere on their kit, do they? Yeah, I'm just looking at a picture of Philippe from last year. Daniel. They have a it's a more uniform, it's a uniform, so, you know, he has the, the, the matching shorts with the kit, but he has the quick Quickstep on his shorts, so there's there's a nod to the sponsors there, but, um, yeah, it's an interesting one, it'd be interesting to speak to somebody like Matt Winston, for example, how would he feel if Roman Bardet was selected for the French team in order to ride in support of Juliana Philippe, for example? That would be an interesting question to answer. We should wrap things up because we're going to go for dinner. Where are we going to go for dinner tonight?
1: We are going, um, to have dinner Richard where we're staying in a place called called Arnuero, I think it, it is um, just at the road just inland a couple of kilometers from this beautiful beach um, As you have said, high the hopes for Playa this? What are, gonna, what are we going to eat? Oh well in Spain I must say Rich thus far um, one thing about Spanish food is it is quite uniform um, across the regions there are obviously local specialities but there are a lot of dishes that you just find everywhere On the, uh, when you're having dinner at the Vuelta a bit like France I must say
2: I mean Galicia the this, the seafood in Galicia I seem to recall being a little bit different and they've got quite a few um, signature dishes there so well, well, we're working our way towards there um, maybe we'll get some seafood tonight who knows um, but let's go and eat Daniel thanks very much Thank we'll uh, reconvene tomorrow as the Vuelta well. does
0: vamos de